Next time you're in Southern Utah, be sure to check out Family Pond. We'll change your mind about pawn shops. From our on-site gemologist and our huge selection of diamonds and wedding sets to our rare and out-of-print LDS books and memorabilia, Family Pond is a great experience for the whole family. And as always, every child gets a free toy. Give them a call today or check out their website at FamilyPondUtah.com. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to, to be with you today. I, so today's episode, if you've, if you've missed the first five, I'm saying this in each of them. If you've missed the first five, we are talking about the historical Jesus. In the first five episodes, we covered Mark, Q, Matthew, Luke, and John. Today is the final episode. This one is going to be the conclusion on the historical Jesus. And we're going to cover a lot of ground because we're going to try and tie up all these loose ends and give you kind of some general statements about what we do with this information. And so I hope you really enjoy the podcast so far, and I really hope you enjoy this conclusion episode. I I want to start just by talking about these books generally. In in church, when we when we go to church and we spend 3 hours going to various classes and and listening to in sacrament meeting, the way that we as a people, and and we get this from Christianity at large, but the way we as a people frame these Gospels and the way we frame Jesus from these Gospels is, is we kind of make the assumption in our head that these are four first-hand witnesses of Jesus, and these guys all got together and wrote down... Um, their thoughts and ideas on the life, teachings, and the divinity of of this Jesus of Nazareth. And and we gotta kind of move past that because that's not what's going on at all. First off, even the legend behind these four authors, with perhaps the exception of John, and we'll get to we'll get to him in a minute, but at least with the first three gospels, these folks we know they are writing late we know the legend behind them is that they are not first-hand witnesses. Again, uh, Mark is this guy named John Mark. Uh, Matthew is believed to be a collector of the sayings of Jesus. And Luke is believed to have been a missionary companion to Paul. And, and we should probably stop here and state, we haven't spent much time on it. We've mentioned it kind of briefly in a few of the episodes, but... But Paul's writings are dated the earliest. They are actually the earliest, closest writings we have to the actual life of Jesus. We know Paul doesn't uh, see Jesus in mortality. He comes to be converted 
after Jesus's death and resurrection. And if you go back and you read all of Paul's writings, and there is, by the way, there is debate over which of Paul's writings were actually written by Paul and which ones are essentially pseudopigrapha or scripture written claiming that Paul is the author. And, and there's a lot of debate about that. And I think the evidence is on the side that not all of this is written by Paul. But, but forget that for a moment. If we look at Paul's writings, he says so very little about the mortality of Jesus, the mortal life of Jesus. He also says very little about what actually Jesus taught. He, anytime he is uh, teaching things, he's teaching kind of what, what resurrected Jesus is telling him or informing him or saying to him. For instance, second Corinthians chapter 12, when, when, when he has this thorn in the flesh and he says that Christ speaking to him says that my strength is made perfect in, in weakness. So, when when Paul and I think there's only about three instances throughout all of Paul's writings where he points to something Jesus taught in mortality, and and of those approximately three times he does that. On one of those occasions, he even says like Jesus taught this, and I'm doing something different. So he even contradicts Jesus on on one of those three times. My point being, we get very little from Paul. Paul doesn't feel it important to tell you much about the mortality of Jesus, of what he taught or of what how he lived out his life. That just doesn't seem to cross Paul's mind as important to share. And so we get very little of the historical Jesus from Paul. But but maybe, maybe there's some weight to what he doesn't say, right? And and then you have Mark who who doesn't claim to be a first hand witness. Like, we have to move in our culture, Christianity at large, but specifically in Mormonism, we have to move past this culture of framing these four Gospels like these guys knew Jesus, they saw him, they watched him, and they wrote down what he did. That's just not the case. These are people much later, a couple of generations or more later. We're talking 50 years, 40 years after Jesus's, um life. Even with Mark, who we believe is the earliest, which may have been written in the 40s or may have been written in the 50s or 60s, we are talking about a 15 to 40 year gap, a 15 to 30 year gap. And and so we have to recognize that this is not the first generation of Jesus followers. This is most likely the second and then third generation of Jesus followers. And what's happening is these folks are in their communities in in the the Jesus movement is growing and there are groups of Jesus followers in various communities and there begins to be discrepancies in the stories of what Jesus did and didn't do and what he said and didn't say and and what happened and what didn't happen in his life and so these folks these second and third generation witness um I shouldn't say witness followers of Jesus are are making a decision to say, I'm going to write this stuff down. I'm going to kind of try to straighten some of this out. And Luke flat out tells you that in his gospel. And, and we'll get into it in a moment, but there's, there's a lot of contradictions in these four gospels. And when you recognize that these are four people geographically distanced from each other, uh, in, in terms of time distanced from each other, some of them have access to others material. Some of them do not. And they are doing the best they can 
to frame Jesus in a way that gives him credibility, frame Jesus in a way that perhaps tries to correct the historical record. But anytime you try to correct the historical record, you also implement more incorrect things into it. That's just the nature of history when you're removed from being a firsthand witness of the events. And, and these guys, these guys aren't like sitting down and God's whispering into their ears. They're just sitting down and trying to put the story on paper and they are embellishing and they do have biases and they do disagree with other of those writers and they're trying to correct or put out a, an idea that is greater than what that other individual said or wrote down. Now, now John's the one exception in terms of legend. Legend has the Gospel of John being being uh, the, an apostle of John, the one that the, the apostle that Jesus loved. And so James James and John, the sons of Zebedee, it's this John that the lore has as writing this Gospel of John. The, the trouble is, he almost definitely has written the latest around ninety to what we say about one ten A.D. and and you have to picture yourself, whoever this person is writing the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Gospel of Thomas, Q source, uh, you know, there are, there, there's probably 50 different documents claiming to add insight on who Jesus was. And, and now this guy comes along and he, he believes he wants to frame this differently and he needs to put this framing on paper. And yet all these other documents are already out there. There's something that that these writers in this time period, these religious writers in this time period, there's something that they do that becomes very obvious as you delve into biblical criticism. And that is, if you want to gain credibility, you put the name of somebody important as the author of the document and then put it out there. And that gets you instant credibility. And and you have to consider, this guy is going to put out a gospel that is completely different than the synoptic gospels. So different, right? So the only way he is ever going to get any traction is if he gives his document some credibility. And so this person claims to be the one Jesus loved. And and again, you just have to go into these things saying, okay, what is most probable? Because there's no way we can draw absolute conclusions on most of this material. But what you have to do is say, look, there's there's 25 different issues here I'm thinking about. What is the, what is most probable with each of them? Now, is it likely that the least probable conclusion is correct on each of these, which you need the, the least likely conclusion on each of these to be the right conclusion? If you're going to just stick with the narrative that you've walked into this with, you see, once you say, look, there's 25 issues and the most probable conclusion on any one of these forces me to shift and to change my view, and to adjust my perspective. Now, what's the chance that the most probable conclusion on all 25 of these issues is wrong? It's slim to none. And so we do have to make some shifts. Sure, if we want to just plead ignorance, and plead naivete, and simply hold our old ground, we can. It, 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 but if we're going to be informed, and speak as if we're informed... We're going to really, really struggle to hold our old, gra- old ground. So again, we know Matthew and Luke are certainly not first-hand witnesses. They're copying off of Mark. And and we also should realize that Mark is almost definitely not a first-hand witness either. And so we just have to learn to treat these four Gospels. These these just aren't, 
these aren't framed the way we framed them. A real, helpful, and real realistic framing is going to involve us seeing these things different than what we did. So now as we jump into this material, we've got uh, things such as the nativity. Mark doesn't talk about it. John doesn't talk about it. Matthew and Luke implement it, but they implement it very differently. Again, go back and read Mark and read the birth story. Go back, I mean Matthew. And go back and read Luke and read the birth story. And, and write down what each one is saying. And what we do is we mash them together and say, okay, everything that happened in Matthew is good and everything that happened in Mark is good. And for some reason they're just not telling you the same pieces of the story. Realize again that these two are working independently. They don't know of each other and they're not aware of each other's work. And, and we can essentially flesh that out by looking at these four gospels and comparing what is in them and how it got there and, and the best ways to explain that. And so since they're working independently, they're, they're both trying to frame a divine birth. They're both trying to grab onto some of these concepts that are probably in the milieu, but, but being unaware of each other, they're not sharing the same birth story. They're just not. And, and we have to kind of come to grips with that. Again, is the nativity, did it, was Jesus born of a Virgin Mary? Certainly possible. Book of Mormon tells us so, certainly. But recognize too, Joseph as the translator goes into that translation believing firmly that, that the gospel narrative of the birth that he has in his mind is the real thing. And so if, if there are gold plates, if there are characters on those plates, and if Joseph is translating them, and Joseph has room to assign words that he thinks convey the meaning the best, and we recognize that this is a loose translation in parts, then even Joseph gets some slack if he puts the New Testament narrative into the Book of Mormon where maybe those prophets didn't quite go that far. So the nativity... The nativity is, it's possible. It's also unlikely based on what we know of these gospels and other things of the historical Jesus. This story is just really unlikely. Herod is unlikely. Um, it just is. And, and so you have, again, you have, uh, Mark and John avoiding it. Uh, Matthew and Luke have separate narratives about the nativity. Did it occur? I think we all have to kind of wrestle with that. And we all have to kind of figure out what it means if maybe that didn't happen the way we're told. Or it didn't happen the way one of those guys told it. And again, we we pretty much, you know, the probability is that the Herod story of killing the firstborn is an embellishment. Uh, Again, Rome kept good records. We have a few historians in this time frame who are non-Christian, who aren't telling us anything about that. While they are sharing other things about Herod and some of the awful things that he did. The the next thing I want to kind of talk about is John the Baptist. This this is an event that is probable. It is probable to say that John was baptized or that Jesus was baptized at the hands of John the Baptist. The the trouble here though is that we have to be better informed about who John the Baptist was and what it is he's doing. And and we have to kind of recognize that John the Baptist all all of this historical analysis points to him being kind of the leader of a group, uh, an apocalyptic preacher. And Jesus being his understudy for some time. And, and all four gospel writers 
working differently to reconcile this fact that Jesus, the Messiah, seems to submit himself to John the Baptist as a higher authority. And when you go back and read these four Gospels and read them with those eyes, you begin to start to see that. There are lots of books out there. John the Baptizer, John the Immerser is another one. There's lots of articles. You can go on Google and type in John the, the Baptizer PDF and read about John the Baptist. You there, there are ways in which you can go out and become more informed on these issues, but what becomes clear is that John the Baptist isn't just some lone guy all by himself dunking people in the water every Saturday afternoon and and Jesus comes to him simply to fulfill all righteousness, but rather that there is a connection with Jesus and John the Baptist. Now again, we've tied Jesus and John the Baptist as family, as relatives. That is in one of the four Gospels. Again, recognize that that is almost definitely an embellishment meant to be a a, a tool in helping that Gospel writer reconcile this this battle of authority in terms of the Jesus followers versus John the Baptist and what authority he held. Again, just recognize that. And I should stop here and just say, like, there's so much stuff here. So fascinating. You could read 20 books on the historical Jesus and you still haven't covered all the ground. There's so much more out there. And literally, we could do a 100 episodes an hour each and pick each one of these issues independently and talk about them. So my suggestion is don't take my word for it. Don't take Fair Mormon's word for it. Don't take uh, even the church's word for it in, in terms of manuals and lesson material. Rather, go out and learn. Go read. Go, go, like, grab this and own it and say, you know what? I'm going to get to the bottom of what I think about this and, and do it. But finishing up with John the Baptist, we, we should say at least that the probability is high that Jesus was actually baptized, immersed in the water by the hands of John the Baptist. And we should just like validate that. Like there, there's people out there who argue that this Jesus person didn't exist at all. And while many of these issues become matters of faith, there is, there is evidence of some of this. And again, we talked in an earlier episode about the criterion of embarrassment, what these four gospel writers are all doing with John the Baptist and what they're doing to try and reconcile that. And we also have, I believe, uh, one of the historians, either Tacitus or Josephus or another who mentions John the Baptist's death. And so again, we know John the Baptist is likely real. We know Jesus is, is, you know, again, I'm speaking from a historical perspective. Jesus is likely real. We, we have evidence that John the Baptist is truly killed, that Jesus before that is baptized at his hands. And so there are things we can kind of establish as a few little stakes in the ground that we can kind of work from. And so just finishing off, recognize that John the Baptist is a real person, but this idea of of him being a leader of a group that Jesus is part of for a short time, where Jesus would consider John the Baptist his mentor. And, and again, just to wrestle with that. The, the next little section I want to talk about is kind of some of the differences in the Gospels. And, and for instance, in Mark, demons and exorcisms are really big. When you go to the other three Gospels, they have a much diminished role. And in one of the Gospels, they're actually gone. I believe it's John. But they're actually gone. There aren't demons. There aren't exorcisms. And like 
like wrestling with the fact that these gospel writers are are just describing a different Jesus. They're describing different things. They're they're portraying Jesus as being concerned with different topics. They're portraying Jesus as as being focused in different areas. And in some ways, these stories are very contradictory, which we'll get to in a moment. Another one is found in, in Mark. Mark refers to the disciples as having no faith. Zero. And several times in his, in his gospel, he refers to the disciples as having zero faith. And, and you'll find that as you read these four gospels, like how Peter is perceived by the author, how different apostles are perceived by the author, and you start to just like, it just like you open your eyes one day and you realize there are really deep biases in these gospels that come through. Again, Mark says the disciples have no faith. He, he portrays them as never figuring things out, kind of being bumbling fools in a way. And, and then Matthew comes along and he redacts that. And by redact, redaction means to take something and to change it to fit some new meaning you're trying to put in. And so Matthew comes along and he redacts Mark. And takes Mark saying no faith and he changes it to, oh ye of little faith, right? And, and this seems like, oh, it's not really a big deal. Like no faith and little faith, they're both sound like real negatives and one's just a little bit better than the other. But that's not true. Because Matthew also plays on this idea of a mustard seed. And that when one has little faith, they can move mountains. And so if you can take these apostles, these disciples, and you can say rather than having no faith, they just had they just had a little faith. Well, now you can paint these these followers of Jesus, these believers, these people so close to Jesus that they now can do wondrous miracles and and do exactly what Jesus is asking them to do rather than being bumbling fools who never catch on. And so that's important. A uh some other things we should talk about the Another consideration that helps us kind of account for the differences in the Gospels is how the authors choose to group Jesus' teachings. Matthew is organized around alternating blocks of stories of Jesus and his teachings. Um, chapters 1 through 4 ha- have, are different than 5 through 7, different than 8 through 9, 10, 11 through 12. 13, just kind of goes through. Luke, on the other hand, places the teachings of Jesus in two large sections. Chapter 6 verse 20 through chapter 8, verse 3, and then chapter 9, verse 51 through chapter 18, verse 14. Now these different approaches, they explain why gospel authors often place sayings of Jesus in different contexts. For instance, when Matthew records the Lord's Prayer early in Jesus' ministry, chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, and Luke places it later, chapter 11, 1 through 4. Gospel writers arranged much of their material on topical and logical grounds rather than chronological. The earliest reference to any uh, gospel was made by Papias, a church father who was in the first decade of the second century and stated that Mark wrote accurately, but not in chronological order, the traditions he learned from Peter. See, again, Mark by this early church father is declared to be a second generation Jesus follower. Thus, early readers noticed the differences between the Gospels, understood some of the basic causes of the differences, and did not regard them as problematic. Again, whether they're problematic or not, recognizing that early church fathers saw that there were differences and were trying 
had had ways of reconciling that so it wasn't problematic to them. Another reason for the differences involves literary style of the individual writers. In Matthew chapter 8, 5 through 13, and Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10, we have two accounts of Jesus healing a centurion servant. In Luke, the conversation takes place between Jesus and Jewish elders who speak on behalf of the centurion. In Matthew, the conversation is directly between Jesus and the centurion. There is no conflict in these accounts when we realize that Matthew has abbreviated the story, 103 words compared to Luke's 186 words. Matthew omitted material unessential to the story, and the elders serving as go-betweens are the least important element in the story. So he just gets rid of it. Thus, just as modern-day journalists report on meetings between heads of state without mentioning the go-betweens, Matthew makes no mention of the elders. And and so we can see like some of these differences are are explainable. We can say, okay, it's okay that there's differences. It's okay that that Matthew and Mark and Luke and even John to some extent are disagreeing with each other because some of this is explainable in terms of of allowing these writers to shape the way they're telling the story to fit what they're trying to do. Maybe they're trying to shorten it. Maybe they're trying to give more detail. And, and so we just, we can give some room for that. That said, we should at least talk about some of these differences. Um, again, one is that three of the gospels paint this as a one year ministry. One of the gospels paints it as a three year ministry. Um, in Matthew, you have the voice of heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Mark and Luke say, you are my beloved son. Again, this one's not a big deal. Um, you have the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit are blessed. Luke says, that's in Matthew and Luke, he says, you who are poor are blessed. Um, Mark 15.25, Jesus is crucified at 9 in the morning. In John 19.14, Jesus is crucified about 6 in the morning. The the trial of Jesus, along with Peter's denial of the Christ, is uh, ordered differently and told differently in Mark versus Luke. And, uh, and and there are others, I mean, again, nativity stories differ. Who sees Jesus at the tomb first when he's, when or, or goes to the empty tomb first is different. Who sees Jesus first as a resurrected being is different. Um, how, how the baptism at the hands of John occurs is different. The, the teachings of Jesus and how they're said are different in the various gospels. One writer will talk about some teachings, another writer will talk about another. The order of events are different. The the people involved sometimes are different. We just have to recognize that this gets messy, that these are four second-hand or later witnesses writing down to the best of their ability, but also with deep biases and with with objectives in mind, trying to record the history of this Jesus, who they believe to be deeply to be the Messiah, but who who also they have not personally been a witness to and to allow these folks the room to kind of have discrepancies between each other. We we should talk about the fact that, again, just reemphasizes that Jesus was a Jew, that the early followers of Jesus were Jews. We, we paint this picture in our faith that Jesus sets up the Christian church. And the reality when you dive into the history is that that really isn't extremely accurate it's not until the second and third generation that 
these followers begin to move out of the synagogue and to begin to have faiths of their own. Now, don't get me wrong, they're going to the synagogue for their religious worship on the Sabbath, but they they still are a small minority of that Jewish synagogue, and there may be just a handful of Jesus followers. And so every community will have those who believe Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm sure these folks get together. No, Undoubtedly they do. Paul is writing to these communities. He writes his epistles to these communities. But in our mind, we have the picture that he delivers the letter, and the letter is read in the sacrament meeting before the congregation, and that's not true. These Jesus followers go to church as Jews. They then probably get together at a home, and, and this epistle is delivered, and they talk about it and read it and discuss it. And Paul shows up and gets the Jesus followers together, and he communicates with them. Like once we understand a little bit more of like how that actually looked when the rubber meets the road, we can kind of wrestle a little more with with what we know and don't know and, and make more allowances for the things we don't know. But again, Jesus is a Jew. Earlier followers are Jews. There really isn't an early Christian church in the first generation, and we just have to kind of accept that. Again, by the second, a little bit. Third, a little more, fourth and fifth generation, it's essentially taken place. But the Jews at that point are forced out or choose to separate themselves from the synagogue. And a faith of its own, Christianity, is formed. We should talk about the appearance of Jesus for a moment. We paint this picture of this kind of white guy, long, straight hair, nice clean cut beard, Again, lighter skin, blue eyes. This isn't, this isn't likely. This isn't accurate. If we're going to say, what did Jesus most likely look like? And, and I get it. We can throw out the apologetic response that half of Jesus' DNA is God. And who knows what God's DNA is? So Jesus is half God. He can look like anything. And, and we have, and we, you know, we, that's the response we would give to say, look, Jesus doesn't have to look like a Jew because he's half God and whatever that DNA looks like and whatever that causes Jesus to, to appear as, that's our way out of this. We can, Jesus, maybe Jesus did have light skin. Maybe he did have long straight hair. Maybe he did have blue eyes. The trouble is, again, framing this from the perspective of the, all of these folks who are writing these things down, they're not describing Jesus as looking different than the rest of them. Jesus isn't sticking out like a sore thumb because of his appearance. And and we know things like the law of Leviticus that Jesus would have adhered to requires that the men not not trim their beards in certain ways. And in the hair and the the skin tone, all of these things. Jesus again, we're talking about probability, not absolutes. And again, we're talking about 25 different issues, and you have to choose on each of these whether you take the less likely conclusion. And if, in, in this situation, the most likely conclusion is that Jesus, as a Jew, looked like other Jews. And so his, his hair would have been more bristly, his beard would have been more unkept, his skin color would have been darker, and his eyes certainly would not have been blue. And, and again, what does that mean for us? Does, what does that mean? If we frame Jesus as looking like like a Jew, dark skin, bristly hair, unkept beard, shorter hair, not likely to have long hair, 
in terms of the hair on his head. And, and we put pictures of that Jesus out there. What does that do for us? Because we as, and I'm speaking for myself and for those who are like me, for white, privileged, English-speaking Americans, it, it is so nice and comfortable to have a white Jesus. So nice and comfortable to have a Jesus that looks like me. If he just, you know, got a good haircut and shaved his beard. And, and so I think that we've got to wrestle a little bit with, let's say Jesus was ugly. Let's say Jesus was four foot six. Let's say Jesus has dark skin and, and, and speaks a language that isn't English. What does that do for how we think of him? And, and I think, I, you know, again, I wish there was art like that in our church. I wish there were pictures of Jesus in our manuals that began to suggest that he did not look like me. But I wonder how many people in our faith would struggle with that because they've grown up with a certain idea of this beautiful person that looks like them whom they worship. We should probably touch on here too, Jesus's name. We call him Jesus Christ. His name was Yahshua. Yahshua would have been, would have been the way his name would have been said and essentially in his language. I might be messing up the pronunciation a touch with some em- emphasis in different places, uh, based on the, the, uh, linguistics, linguistics of the, of the area he lived in. But his name would be Yahshua. And translated from Hebrew Yahshua to English, we have Joshua. Translated from Hebrew to Greek, we have Jesus or Jesus. And translated again, keep in mind Zeus being a Greek god, Jesus, Greek, translated into English, we get Jesus. And, and so I often wonder if Jesus was literally in the room talking to us and we had any educational background at all in this biblical criticism, would he announce himself as Joshua? Would he announce himself as Joshua? Or would he refer to himself as Jesus? Again, I don't think it impacts anything, but I think it's interesting. Um, Yahshua, son of Yosef, would have been kind of that title he was born with. Uh, Yahshua of Nazareth. And, and again, just realizing that the way we frame it in our head is actually much different than the actual event or way in which things occur. So... There's differences in these gospels on the birth, differences in the baptism, differences in his life, differences in his teachings, differences on the trial, differences on his death, and differences in them on the resurrection. We all have to wrestle with that. But we also have to come to grips with the things that we almost certainly know. It It is fair to say that it is almost entirely probable or likely or certain, just less than certainty, that Jesus was a historical person. He was almost assuredly a healer and in some ways perhaps even just a little less certainty an exorcist in the view of those around him. He was almost assuredly baptized at the hands of John and again John was assuredly, uh, almost assuredly a real historical person. And Jesus was almost assuredly killed at the direction of Pontius Pilate in the mode of crucifixion. Much of the rest of the narrative is debated, and, and I think each of us should get more informed and, and better understand what that debate entails. Even in the most faithful paradigm, this info, info, this information cannot all be reconciled 
without grasping that there is embellishment in fictional stories added to the Christ story. Now, there's plenty of room for faith, but it has to be nuanced. We're going to have to be willing to say we've gotten it wrong on lots of this. We've overreached on lots of this. One has to give room to embellishment and figurativeness or grasp that even though an event may not have actually happened in the life of Jesus or that he may have not actually taught a certain teaching, that there's still truth there that can be discovered and implemented into our spiritual lives. It compels us to be more understanding of differences in perspectives and to have more allowance in our heart and in our mind for variation of belief. Before I wrap up with with some final words, let's just kind of hit these on a real surface level. Who is traditionally attributed to be the author? In Mark, John Mark of Jerusalem. In Matthew, a tax collector and an apostle. In Luke, a physician and companion of Paul. In John, John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve. Who is the implied author? He's In Mark, it's a bilingual person. He knows Aramaic and he knows Greek. He's a Christian of the second generation. He's a young man. In Matthew, he's multilingual, Aramaic and Greek mainly. He's an early Jewish Christian. He's a trained scribe. In Luke, it's a Gentile Christian convert, well-educated. He's a, he has, he has some ability within Greek as a Greek historian, and he's a client of Theophilus. What about in John? Again, the implied author, the beloved disciple, and his Jewish Christian followers. Again, who does the author say he is versus who do we traditionally attribute the author as? To whom is the implied audience? Mark is writing to mostly Gentiles, fairly new in their faith and facing persecutions. Matthew's better educated. He's writing to better educated Jews who believe in Jesus but argue over the law. How about Luke? He's writing to a wealthier Gentile Christian in an urban setting becoming complacent. What about John? He's writing to a mixed audience, mostly Jews, some Gentiles, Samaritans, etc. The date they're written, Mark, is the very first written gospel. And it comes likely in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, maybe as early as the late 40s. Matthew, 70s and 80s. Luke, more than likely the mid to late 80s. And John is generally believed to be in the 90s in the epilogue in there after 100 AD. They have different literary styles, different stylistic styles, different thematic comparisons. You can go online, you can type in what are the differences between the various Gospels, and you can read and read and read on those. But at the end of the day, what we have to come to grips with is that third day. As, as I kind of finish up this episode, I, I hope you've learned a lot. But I think there's one thing that we have to place deep in our soul, and that's that something happened on that third day. If this is just a fraudulent movement, then it becomes difficult for me and for many scholars and for others to reconcile that that at the end of Jesus' life, these people symbolically truly did pick up his cross and and keep moving. And they put their lives at stake. They risked their very lives. They risked being marginalized and ostracized by their community and they risked the, the, their very life of being killed. 
So we can sit here and say, yeah, Jesus is a real person. He's baptized by John, but that's messy. That the nativity story is a likely embellishment, but that Jesus is known in his community as a healer, likely an exorcist uh, performer. That he is crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate, but we don't know that all of his teachings are legitimate. We don't know all the events in his life happened the way the gospel writers, some of them frame it, or others of them frame it. But we have to come face to face with that third day. I I think Mark does it best. I don't necessarily mean in terms of historicity, but I, I mean in terms of theme. Mark, in chapter 16, ends his writing with the women coming to the tomb, the stone rolled away, and there's no one inside. There is no Jesus. And, and, a, and a young man appears, and he tells these women, this Jesus you seek, he is not here. He is risen. He is risen. And from that moment, this little movement that could have easily just died off grew into something incredible because of the devotion the faith, the persistence, and the courage of those early Jesus followers. And so do we need to reframe how we, how we look at this story? Absolutely. Do we need to make allowance for our very own church having overreached on how literal all of this was and the way they framed it? Absolutely. Do we need to be willing to let go of some of the, the narrative around Jesus as embellishment in fiction? Absolutely. But I also think for those of us who, who are moving through that space, we also need to recognize that something happened on that third day and that it's a matter of faith and that each of us can choose to believe that whatever that was, it was divine and it was God driven. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless you. May, may you find deeper faith in the search for the historical Jesus as well as the Jesus of faith. It's my prayer, my, my, my deep down sincerest prayer that we won't walk away from this, that we'll realize, man, this gets messy and man, everything's up for, for reevaluation. But that when you come out the other side, you realize there is something spiritual here that calls us to stay in this tension and to move forward. God bless you. Again, may the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of the Christ of faith, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Come stay.